Hello folks, Matt here again, brewing up and waxing historical. Today we have a prelude to even discussing the reality of Antarctica. Antarctica was a point of discussion long before anyone actually went south to look for it, let alone found it, let alone stood on it, let alone stuck a flag in it and claimed ownership. In the 6th century BCE, Pythagoras applied his brains to the evidence regarding lunar eclipses and ships disappearing over the horizon before reaching their vanishing point, and postulated that the world was round. And in the 4th century BCE, Aristotle posited that a counterweight continent must exist in the south to balance out the mass of the land in the northern hemisphere. While the reasoning behind the conclusion was flawed, the conclusion was correct, though no one would know that empirically for over 2,000 years. Where the Arctic region was named for Arctos, the constellation better known today as Ursa Major, the Big Bear, or the Big Dipper, the spuriously posited but extant by coincidence southern continent was named for being at the opposite end of the planet to that presided over by the constellation of the Bear, Antarctic. It was not a matter of the ancient Greeks knowing that Antarctica would turn out to have no population of bears, as I have heard some people state. The ancient Greeks were smart, and sometimes grasped ideas the rest of Europe would have to wait for the Enlightenment to consider, but even the atomists didn't nail that one. The bear thing is one of those happy coincidences Douglas Adams might have appreciated, like the white rhino being paler than the black rhino, despite the etymology of its name having nothing to do with the species' colour. On the opposite end of the geographic conclusions scale in that era, Eratosthenes added a piece to the puzzle by sound induction rather than guessing, in 240 BCE. Eratosthenes knew that at midday on the solstice each year, the sun shone directly down a well lying 50 miles from Alexandria. With the sun directly overhead that point at that moment, he could measure the shadow of an obelisk in Alexandria at the same time, and the length of the shadow relative to the height of the obelisk would give him the degrees of arc difference in the relative position of the sun in the two places. This, in turn, would indicate the proportion of the planet's surface covered by the distance between the two places. The obelisk's shadow covered 7.5 degrees of arc, about 1 50th of a circle's circumference. Assuming the Earth to be spherical, the calculation derived from this yielded an estimate of 252,000 stadia, which, if we use the common attic stadion of 185 metres as a starting point, comes out at about 46,620 kilometres only out by about 16.3%. So bravo, Eratosthenes. Top marks and an elephant stamp for that little piece of inductive geography. In the first century of the Common Era, the Roman geographer Mailer proposed that the Earth was composed of five regions. Two polar cold regions, a torrid equatorial zone, and temperate habitable zones between the three uninhabitable ones. Based on the knowledge that heading north led to colder conditions and heading south led to warmer ones, and an assumption of a spherical Earth, this concept was correct in all but the prediction of conditions hostile to human survival in the tropics. So nice one, Mailer. Not as impressive as Eratosthenes, but top marks for effort. Then along came Ptolemy. In the second century of the Common Era, this Greek astronomer established the cartographic principles of grid projections onto flat surfaces and advocated the use of astrolabes for finding latitude by making observations of the sun, but rejected Aristarchus' heliocentric model, setting a low geographic bar for Western thought through the Dark Ages, not to be questioned until the 16th century when Copernicus re-proposed that the Earth went around the sun, 
are not to be contested until the 17th century, when Galileo would get himself first censured and then tried by the Inquisition, who sentenced him to house arrest for supporting the Copernican heresy. Ptolemy endorsed the Greek model of a symmetrical earth and posited inhabited lands in the southern temperate zone, terra australis incognita, but also stated that it was impossible to reach such areas because of the fiery torrid zone, an idea which took hold and curbed southward exploratory ambitions for 1,200 years. Nice work getting geodetics off the ground, Ptolemy, but you suck for hobbling further thought on geography for one and a half millennia. The idea of unreachable populations in the southern hemisphere posed a problem for the fledgling theology of the rising mystery cult, Christianity. If people existed in the south, they could not be reached with the good news of Jesus' sacrifice of himself to himself for our not having turned out the way his omnipotent father self wanted us to. If the Bible stated the Gospels went to all people, and the Gospels couldn't go south through the torrid zone, people in southern lands could not exist. The best way to deal with the inherent heresy of a spherical and symmetrical earth was to have a flat one, an idea backed by passages in the book of Isaiah. Case closed. No more geographical incongruities and problems solved once and for all. Well, clearly, that was not the end of it. Mariners knew the earth was spherical, and the churches could get on with burning heretics if they wanted, but there was money to be made by sailing places on the spherical earth basis. So there lay the state of things when seafaring Europeans first began exploring the seas beyond the Atlantic. They knew the earth was spherical through empirical evidence, but still relied on Ptolemy's estimate of its size, despite his methods being demonstrably less useful than those employed by his predecessors. This reliance on the Ptolemaic model misled Christopher Columbus in his estimate of when he should reach India by heading west from Portugal, and similarly led Ferdinand Magellan to underestimate the distances ships had to cover to make landfall as the first Europeans to cross the Pacific, leading to seven weeks of near starvation that only ended when they reached Guam. Sir Francis Drake, following Magellan's path aboard his Golden Hind in 1578, reached out his arm from the southernmost point of Tierra del Fuego, and declared himself the southernmost man in the world, becoming the starting point in our tracking of the obsession with being the exiest Y, which eventually became an obsession with being first to get to the pole, a recurring theme in the narrative of Antarctic exploration. Hints of Antarctica were spotted, with Tierra del Fuego first being thought an archipelago extending north from a continental landmass before Drake's expedition demonstrated it was actually the reverse, with the islands being the southern extension of South America. In 1592, English explorer John Davis discovered the Falkland Islands aboard the Desire. Dutch sailor Dirk Geritz claimed to find land resembling Norway in the area later confirmed to be the South Shetland Islands in 1622, but the claim was thrown into doubt by a crew member who stated the ship never made it within 8 degrees of latitude of the 64 degrees south at which the islands actually lie. Garrett's claim is of interest regardless, as it is the first of many such claims of doubtful veracity to plague the exploration of southern climes, with icebergs, poor navigation and unbridled ambition each playing a role in muddying the gradually accumulating pool of knowledge about Antarctica and its surrounds. With the Netherlands shrugging off Spanish rule in the 17th century, the Dutch East India Company ruled the seas to the extent they claimed a right to control who could pass south of South America through the Straits of Magellan, so maritime nations began looking for loopholes around this ruling in the form of alternate paths to navigate between the oceans. 
Thus, the first known deliberate forays into the Southern Ocean were geared towards being cheapskates and not paying tariffs, rather than seeking your southern land. I make a point about deliberate forays because sailing vessels cannot always go where their crew wants them to go, and several unintentional forays south were made by ships blown off course, such as happened to Drake's Golden Hind. And it's not hard to imagine that the first humans to reach Antarctica did so in corpse form aboard crippled but still buoyant ships, but no evidence of such misadventure has yet come to light. In 1642, the Dutch East India Company was well established in Batavia and had explored parts of the west coast of Australia, but uncertainty remained as to whether or not this constituted part of the fabled Terra Australis Incognita. Abel Tasman was sent south from Batavia to sort the matter out. Sailing east at 49 degrees south, he missed the Australian mainland entirely, but did encounter first Tasmania and then the west coast of New Zealand. Failing to follow up appropriately and circumnavigate the islands, he returned north, figuring he'd discovered the west coast of the great southern continent without having ever sighted anything but islands. Larger than most, but still islands. In 1675, a London merchant, Antonio Della Roche, was blown south of Cape Horn and made the first recorded sighting of South Georgia, which provided him shelter on its leeward side, where he gazed upon a prospect of great snow-covered mountains falling sheer to the sea. Laroche sighted land further south in the same location, identified on the Dutch charts he studied in Amsterdam as being the edge of the southern continent. Most likely, he was looking at the Klerk Rocks, 30 nautical miles southeast of South Georgia, but this was not the last time an island would be mistaken for a continent in the exploration of the Southern Ocean. An English buccaneer provided the earliest known description of Southern Ocean icebergs in 1687 and noted the readiness with which these were at first taken for land, a common theme in future explorations. At this time, myths about Prester John and a Christian kingdom of great riches saw some Europeans speculate on the fortunes to be made by travelling far afield, though a shortage of helpful directions saw adventurers heading in wildly different directions. While Portuguese merchants headed to the Horn of Africa in search of Prester John, and others sought his kingdom in India and the New World, Alexander Dalrymple, a Scottish geographer, collated the available information about the Aristotelian unknown land in the south, the Terra Australis Incognita, in the 18th century, proposing that wealth equivalent to that promised by discovery of Prester John's kingdom be found there, if not the kingdom itself. Dalrymple came to a conclusion about an approximate location and speculated that trade with the nominal 50 million inhabitants of Terra Australis Incognita would more than amply make up for that lost with the 2 million ingrates in America who so recently turned their backs on England. Dalrymple failed to generate interest in his speculations, but his efforts marked the first attempt at qualifying and quantifying a commercial interest in the southern polar region. French merchant mariner, Jean-Baptiste Bouvet de Lozier, sailing two vessels in search of productive and safe ports for the ships of the French Compagnie des Indies, discovered the most isolated landmass in the world, Beauvetoya, to the south of Africa. He tried to get ashore, but poor weather prevented a landing and pack ice prevented further exploration south. So de Lozier returned to France, uncertain whether or not he'd found an island or a headland or a continent. His feat of navigation went unrecognised but for the name the island came to bear after it was determined to actually be an island, and its location better fixed in 1808. In 1772, Marion de Frayne discovered the Prince Edward Islands and the Isle de Crozet 
in the southern Indian Ocean while searching for the fabled southern continent. At the same time, fellow Frenchman Yves-Joseph de Kerguelen Tremarac, acting on orders from the French government to search for Terra Australis incognita, discovered the Ile Kerguelen that couldn't accurately plot their location due to inclement weather. In spite of the weather constraints, Kerguelen named the islands La France Australe, declaring them to be the central mass of the Antarctic continent, and speculated that crops, wood, diamonds and rubies would be found, and that people would definitely be living there. Nice one, Kerguelen. Doofus. In spite of the many false positives described so far, it would be many years and many further false starts before confirmation of the long-posited southern continent was achieved. These early forays into the southern ocean did definitely show that any southern continent was smaller than optimistic charts by Ortelius and Whitfleet suggested. Next episode, I'll begin covering the exploits of the people who were not only sent to find Terra Australis Incognita, but who actually started putting together the puzzle that others had only identified existing in puzzle form. <laughs>